Good morning. I would like to invite you to open God's word with me this morning to that passage that Liza just read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the chapters are the big numbers, and then verses 13 through 18, which are the small numbers. Go ahead and make your way there. As you look for it, uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians is in the New Testament. So it's toward the end of your Bible, if you're new to the scriptures, in what we like to call the T section. You'll find all the, the T books together. You've got First and Second Timothy and Titus, but before that, you'll find First and Second Thessalonians. So I hope you can find that with me this morning. Today we are continuing our uh, walk verse by verse through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this sermon study that we are calling Grace and Peace to You. That phrase is, is what Paul, one of the most influential leaders in, in all of human history, uses to greet this church in Thessalonica, which was a, a relatively new church that was full of, uh, of new believers. His purpose, as we've talked about in these many weeks together in this letter, is, is to do two things. And these are the same two things that we are called to do for one another in our Christian walk. In relationship with one another, Paul says we're to do two things. They both start with E. Can anybody say what they are? We are to establish and to, what did we talk about last week? Exhort, right? Last Sunday, we talked about what it meant to exhort one another on an ongoing basis, how We are to challenge and encourage and remind one another with the truth of God's word on an ongoing basis. So this is not just once a month. This isn't just once a year. This is a weekly basis, a daily basis. We are encouraging one another so that none of us in this room drifts from the faith. So that none of us in this room becomes hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. We need the exhortation of one another. In the first part of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul provided a, an incredible example of what exhortation looks like when he told the believers, he reminded these believers what God's word says about the areas of sex and relationships and their work lives. He, he showed us what that kind of thing looked like. But today, as we move into the second part of chapter 4, it's really interesting. He makes a turn from one E to the other, from from exhorting the Christians to establishing them. So whereas in the first part of 1 Thessalonians, he was reminding them of truths that they already knew. In this next part, what he does is he seeks to give them new information about an area of the Christian life that they were uninformed, that they just didn't know. And so he wants to establish them. He wants to give them the information that they need. That's why he says one of the key areas that he wants to get across to them is the area of death and how it relates with the return of Jesus Christ. If you would look with me at verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, so they were uninformed. You have to remember that, that he was only with these Christians for a short amount of time before he got kicked out of Thessalonica. He had not given them all the information that they needed. So he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And when he says that phrase, those who are asleep, he is not talking about the believers in Thessalonica that like to take a good nap, okay? That's not, it's not the point of this text. He's using those who are asleep as a common euphemism for death. It is very important for Paul that, that these new believers have a right understanding of death because here's the thing. He knows that what we believe about our ultimate future radically shapes how we live in the present. He knows that the implications of what we believe about death are are immense. And so therefore, he wants them to understand this information. The problem 
for many of us, and probably likely those in Thessalonica, is that there are not too many of us that want to think about death. We don't enjoy thinking about death. Instead, we'd rather kind of push it aside. We'd rather act as if it's not coming. But friends, no matter whether we like it or not, death is all around us. I mean, you think about just this last week. Think about the news headlines that have been all over the place. It's been about death, about the tragedy of suicide in a couple circumstances. And then, of course, the the illness and death of, of one of the 49er legends, Dwight Clark, who beat my beloved Dallas Cowboys with the catch. And so you have these deaths. They are all around us. We cannot hide from it. This morning, I realized that we live in a relatively young city. San Francisco is a pretty young city if you look around. This church is, is a fairly young church, but I can tell you with full confidence that there is going to be a lot of death in your future. I realize that's not great, happy news as we enter into the summer together as a church family, but Paul wants to get your attention. It doesn't matter who you are in this room, you're getting older. You look around, your friends, your family, those you love, they're getting older. One of two things is going to happen. You are either going to meet death at an age earlier than any of us in this room would desire. Or number two, you're going to live a long life and you're going to face the deaths of the people around you. Death is all around us. We cannot escape it. Well, it's this truth that is very painful for the church in Thessalonica. In fact, that's the reason Paul is writing this. They had been taught about the return of Jesus, but many of these believers had the mistaken notion that that all the believers who had been saved would still be alive when Jesus returned. But now here they were, time had passed, and, and the fact of the matter was some of these Christians that they loved, their family, their friends had died, and yet Jesus had not come back. What were they to do with that? In light of that, Paul says these words, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. This morning, if we are going to rightly understand and apply this text, it is very important that you realize that Paul is writing to a group of grieving Christians. To grieve has been described as a life-shaking sorrow over loss. If you've ever experienced grief, you know that to be true. It's a life-shaking experience over loss. These Thessalonians grieved over these individuals that they loved being dead. They grieved over this wrong, mistaken notion that somehow these Christians were going to miss out on the return of Christ and all the blessings of that coming, of his coming. They were people who were grieving. Paul was not writing them an academic paper about the end times. This is a post-funeral letter. And I think it's important this morning that we look at what he says, but also what he does not say. I think this is very important. In no way does Paul say that the act of grieving over death is in some way unchristian. In fact, the, the scriptures never tell us the answer to death. The answer of responding to death is stoicism, right? Where we as Christians, if we really trust Christ, we're going to act like death doesn't really matter that much. That it's not that sad. We have to be strong, keep a chin up. The scriptures never say that. No, Paul says it is good and right for Christians to mourn and grieve over this reality that we all know as death. In fact, if you look at the example of Jesus, you think about Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. What does it say? 
It does not say that Jesus uh, was strong in that moment. It doesn't say that Jesus acted like Lazarus' death didn't matter, that it wasn't that big of a deal. What does it say? It says that Jesus wept. He shed tears. He poured out his heart over the death of his friend Lazarus. Sorrow and grief and grieving are good and they are right because here's the thing. Death is not natural. No matter what people may try to convince you of, death is not how this world is supposed to be. As a pastor, I have the opportunity to um, be involved with more funerals than most people are. And there are times where people will have an open casket um, funeral, right? I think most of you have probably been to something like that. Well, many times I hear people come up and the family's there and the casket's there and they'll come up and they have every good intention. I, I realize that, but they'll come to the family, they'll look at the body and they'll say, he or she looks great. They look so natural. Now, again, I realize their desire in that moment. They're trying to be an encouragement. They're trying to comfort. But I have never once looked at the casket of an individual, looked at that body and said, that looks natural. When I look at a casket, that person looks dead. And friends, death is not just a normal part of life. Death, what we experience in that is an enemy. Do our hearts not tell us that? Does the loneliness we experience, the grieving, the anger, the sorrow that we experience, does that not tell us that death is an enemy, not a friend? It is not just some natural part of life that we must embrace if we're going to get along. If you've ever watched the movie The Lion King, it's a kid's movie. That's the message, right? There's a circle of life. You live. You die. You become fertilizer. You turn into grass and other people eat you. It's one big happy circle of life. That's not what the scriptures say. It says never to approach death like that. Our impending death, the death of the people around us should cause us to weep. Death is a consequence of sin. When humanity chose to distrust God and to rebel against his authority over our lives, when we decided to say, you know what, God, we can do better than you. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Each one of us has done the same. When we made that choice, sin entered in the world. And not only were we broken, but what does it say? All of the creation was broken. Read Romans 8. Everything was broken. Death was a part of that. And that's why Paul looks at these believers and he looks to each one of you. As I was reading this week, I know there are many of you who have lost family members, lost loved ones in this last calendar year. You're mourning, you're hurting, and Paul is looking at you today and he is saying it is good and it is right for us to mourn over death. Death is not natural. It is not how God designed this to be. It is a product of sin. But there's an important distinction that Paul makes here. Because he says what? Yes, Christians should grieve. It is good and right. But what does he say? We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Paul makes a distinction between Christians who have been saved by God, who have been redeemed, who have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, and those who do not have a relationship with Christ. He says we who are Christians do not grieve as those who do not have hope. Point number one this morning is simply this. Jesus offers great hope for the present. When it comes to this idea of death, Jesus offers great hope for the present. Most people, grieving over death is accompanied by this sense of hopelessness. Uh, There was a British philosopher named Bertrand Russell. 
And he said these words, and I just want you to hear what he says about this life and about death. He says this, The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach and where none may tarry long. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Does that excite many of you to get out of bed tomorrow? That's the way that the Greco-Roman world looked at this idea of death. The people that Paul was writing to, that's that culture. This is how they looked at death. Death was hopeless. On many of the tombstones of individuals who died during this period, you'll find this inscription. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That was the idea. Death equals a lack of hope. Now, you may say, Ryan, our culture is different. I mean, you look at almost any religion, you look at almost any belief system in our culture today, and almost every single one offers hope that people can hold on to in the midst of death. Hope for life after death. I would say you're right. They absolutely do. But here's the problem. Paul would ask us, is it a genuine hope? Because any of us can hope for a lot of things. I can hope that on my way home today that I'll find an envelope with a million dollars. That's a great hope of mine. But if that hope goes unfulfilled, would it not be a false hope? When you look at the religions of the world, in essence, what all of them come down to is this same singular premise. That our hope for life after death is entirely dependent on our record in this life. It's dependent on how good of a person we've been, how good of a friend or a parent or a spouse we've been. People's hope is that their good outweighs their bad, that their actions and their intentions will be enough to satisfy whatever superpower it is that they believe can give them eternal life. I want you to think for a moment about how this plays out in Islam. Uh, right now, literally Muslims from around the world are, are coming to the end of Ramadan, which is a, a month that is set aside for, for special consecration to Allah. They, they fast from sunrise to, to, to sundown. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, a group from our church went with uh, one of our mission partners here in the city to what they call an iftar, which is the breaking of that daily fast during the month of Ramadan. As we had conversation with this, different individuals at that event, over and over again, we heard the same premise. And that was this, there is a point system that we must live up to. We would ask, why do you pray? Why are you fasting? Why are you coming? Why are you showing such hospitality to us? They were incredibly hospitable. And each one of them spoke to this point system that if they gained enough points, they hoped that those points would lead to a life of paradise after their death, that they would be with Allah forever. It was all about points. Tonight is a night they call night of power. If you do prayers and fasting during this night, you get more points than other nights. Well, friends, while we might not all practice it in such a formalized way, that is the belief system of most people. If we can do enough good things, if my record in life is good enough, I have hope for life after death. But Paul looks at that whole scenario and he says this, that is no hope at all. Why? As I was sitting with a friend this week, he said these words and it stuck with me. He said, neither the quality nor the quantity of our good works can ever measure up to a truly holy God. You hear that? 
He says, neither the quantity nor the quality. In other words, even if you and I were to look at our lives and look at the quantity, we'd say, my good works are more than my bad works. Which, who of us can even really say that? But even if we could, if you look at the quality of our good works, the motives, the behavior behind those good works, could we really say this is what is deserving to bring me into the presence of a perfectly holy God for all of eternity? No. Paul looks at that and he says, friends, it doesn't matter how good or bad you are. Your quality and your quantity don't matter. All of us are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And what our sin has earned is not eternal life with God. Our sin has earned judgment. It's earned death. For the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, yes, but also for eternity. He says that is what our good works have earned. This is no hope at all. It is impossible to have genuine hope if your hope for life after death is dependent on your own record. But Paul says we as Christians have a different kind of hope. We as Christians have, have a unique hope, and it's what Paul calls a living hope. Why is it called a living hope? Because our hope is not in our own record, but it is in a living Savior, a living Lord who defeated death, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He says, if you want to have hope in the midst of death, if you want to grieve with hope, he says, you need to understand this fundamental message of Christianity. Jesus died and he rose again. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in this truth. Jesus died and we rose again. And if we are with him, then we too can have life. We too can have hope. By pointing to Jesus' death, of course, he is reminding them of this incredible story of how God sent his son into the earth to live a perfect, sinless life. That Jesus, having lived a perfect, sinless life, would then go to the cross voluntarily, giving his life on the cross as a punishment for sin. He took the punishment for sin that each one of us deserved. He took the punishment of death for us. And in the miracle, above all miracles, it says that our sin was imputed to Jesus on that cross. And then what? His righteousness was imputed to us who believe. And so today, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ, turned from your sin, repented of your sin, and trusted him, what does that mean? It means that when God looks at you now and on the day of your death, he does not see the filth of your sin. There's hope. Why? Because he sees the righteousness of his perfect son. That has been imputed to you. You have been given that. You've been given forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death. He is victorious over sin because of his death. But we also have hope because Jesus didn't just die, but what? Three days later, he rose from the dead. We can have genuine hope. We can know that our hope for life after death is genuine because we are with a Savior who's actually already done that. He went into the grave and then he rose from the dead. We have this morning a tremendous amount of hope because of Jesus. I was sitting at a, a co coffee shop this week with a friend. And right next to us, there was a very animated conversation going on about spiritual matters. Uh, as they were talking about all these different things, uh, the girl of that conversation said a very sad statement. 
as I listened to it, I just thought, what a hopeless statement that is. She said this, and I wrote it down because I wanted to remember it. She said, I am certain that when I move from this life to the next, I do so utterly alone. I am certain that when I move from this life to the next, I do so utterly alone. Friend, I hope you realize this morning that that does not have to be the case. Paul says those who have entrusted their life to Jesus do not enter into death alone. They enter in union with Jesus Christ, through Jesus, with Jesus. They have hope in the midst of death. A different passage in Philippians, he says to depart from this life is to be with Christ. It is our connection to Jesus that brings about hope. I will never forget doing my very first funeral. I was 22 years old and I remember I didn't know any of the family. They were all older individuals. The, the woman who I was doing the funeral for had been 83, lived an incredible life, an incredible believer, but most of her family were not believers. And I can remember as I prepared for that day, I began to ask myself, what am I doing up here? Who am I to speak to these people? I'm 22. I have very little life experience. Who am I to speak to all these people who are older than me, have more life experience? And I don't even know them. I can remember in that moment, I was reminded, Ryan, you are not speaking because of who you are. You're not speaking at this funeral because of your degree or because of some position you have. You are speaking because you know one who has gone into the grave and come alive. You know one who has brought life after death. I was there because I had hope in Jesus. And friend, I want you to know you too can have that hope this morning. The first thing that this text demands that we ask is simply this. Do we have hope in death? And so I would submit to you, each one of you, it does not matter how long you've been coming to this church. I am asking once again today, are you truly in Christ? Have you truly responded to the love and kindness of Jesus by turning from your sin and placing your trust entirely on his work for you? Have you been brought from death to life? Have you been brought from the sinking sand of your own life record to the rock solid foundation of Jesus and his work accomplished on the cross and his resurrection? This is not a question that can be answered by the person sitting next to you. It is not a question that can be answered by your parent or by your spouse. Each one of us must answer this alone. Do I truly have hope in death? This morning, I pray that if you don't, that you would give your life to Christ. You do not have to enter into death utterly alone. But Jesus continues, or Paul continues, because he, has, he goes on to say this, Jesus also offers great hope for eternity. Look at with me at verse 14. For the present, as we think about death, that we have hope, but we have hope for all of eternity. Look at with me at verse 14. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
You see, one of the key reasons the Thessalonians were grieving was they thought that those who had died, those Christians that they loved who had died, would in some way miss out on the return of Jesus. And so what Paul does in this text is he establishes them. He gives them the information they're missing. He says, this is actually what Jesus has taught about his return. Now, as we dive into this, I want you to remember this one truth that Paul is writing primarily to encourage a grieving community. He is not trying to give each one of us this morning an entire systematic understanding of what happens in the end times. Far too many people have looked at this text and they've tried to create an entire eschatology of what the end times are going to be like by this one text. They've created books, left behind being one of them, where people disappear, planes crash, cars crash, it's chaos, right? They say this is what it's going to look like all through this one verse. Well, I love what one of my favorite uh, pastors and preachers constantly says. He, Alistair Begg is a pastor in Ohio, and he constantly says this. He says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. He said, when we get off of what's main and plain and we try to build off of that, he says, that's where we get into danger. And friends, that's what a lot of people do with this text in front of us. He is writing to a grieving community, and he says three truths in order to encourage them. These are the three things that you need to know about Jesus' return. Number one, Jesus will return. You see that in verse 16. For those of us that think that Jesus is never coming back, that he's never coming, Paul says, listen, Christian, they are, he is returning. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. As I read this, my first thought was, this is a very noisy verse, right? It's very noisy. Any idea, any notion that the return of Christ is going to be some secret event is is absolutely bogus. Who blows a trumpet if it's supposed to be a secret, right? That's what we see here. The return of Jesus will be an event unlike any other that we can imagine. Revelation 1 says that he will come with the clouds and every eye will see him. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that this use of the trumpet has incredible symbolism. It's very important. And that day, that trumpet wasn't just a musical instrument to be played, but instead the trumpet rang out at very important events in Israel's history. The anointing of a king. The prophets said that the trumpet would sound when the day of the Lord came, a day of judgment for some and salvation for others. Here at the sound of the trumpet, at the command of God, Paul says something remarkable will happen. He says, Jesus will return, but two, the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ, those who are Christians, those who have put their trust in Jesus, they will rise from the dead. Verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that, friends, is an incredible picture. But here's the thing. If you do not understand the context of who Paul is writing to, you're going to misunderstand what he's saying in in that point of the text. You see, in that day when an emperor or a sovereign person would come into the city, a a city like Thessalonica, what would happen is that they would do so to great fanfare. The officials of the city and the population of the city would actually leave the city gates. They'd go outside of the city. Sometimes the historians tell us for miles in order to meet that sovereign, that emperor. They would do so with clapping. They would do so with shouting. It would be an incredible celebration. And they'd go and they'd meet them. And then what would happen? They would 
usher that emperor back into the city where he would reign. We're going to see something to sort of like that on Tuesday in the streets of Oakland. Some of you may even be planning to go there, right? It's going to happen. People are going to get up early and they're going to go line the streets of Oakland and they're going to wait and they're going to shout and they're going to dance. There's going to be all sorts of chaos. Why? Because the victorious Golden State Warriors are coming back into their city. And so we're going to go out and we're going to welcome them. We're going to celebrate their great victory. Friends, that's the imagery that that Paul is painting in this text when he talks about those who are dead in Christ. They will rise and they will go out and meet the Lord. This will be an unbelievable celebration. Paul says there is no reason to grieve over those who have died. They are not going to miss Jesus' coming. Instead, they are going to be the first to rise. They're going to have the seats of prominence at the Lord's return. And then we who are alive are going to join with them and together we will meet the Lord and celebrate his coming as he ushers in his sovereign rule. That's what he's getting at in this text. The dead in Christ will rise. It will be a moment of great celebration and it will all culminate with one last reality, one last experience. And this is where Paul wants you to think about this morning. What does he say? Jesus will return. The dead in Christ will rise. We will join with them. And third, we will be with the Lord forever. He says, so we will always be with the Lord. He says, this, friends, is what matters about the return of the Lord. If you want to truly have hope in the midst of death, if you want to have hope for Christians who have died, you need to understand these three things. Jesus will return. The dead in Christ will rise and we will be with him for eternity. You say, Ryan, that's not all I want to know. I want to know more. What are the dead in Christ coming up from the ground? What's that going to look like, right? When exactly is this going to happen? What are our new resurrected bodies going to look like? Am I going to shed 20 pounds on that? Those things he would have just, what's this going to be like? Paul says, friend, if Jesus wanted us to know those things, he would have disclosed it. But here's what you need to know. Jesus will return, the dead in Christ will rise, and we will be with him forever. Can you imagine anything greater than that? (laughs) Everything leads up to this moment and nothing matters beyond it. We will be with the Lord forever in his sovereign reign. And he ends with verse 18 and he says this, Therefore, go and encourage one another with these words. He doesn't say to us, go and argue with one another over these words. He doesn't say go and speculate about these words. Go and write long fictional stories about these words. He says what? Encourage one another with these words. This is not a day to fear. This is a day to celebrate. We will meet our sovereign Lord. We will usher and celebrate him as he enters his reign. Praise be to God. If you sit here today and you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ this morning, there is one simple action step I have for you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. No matter how difficult your circumstances may be in this life, no matter how many fears you may be facing, even in this moment, Paul says there will be a day where you will experience a victory unlike any other victory. You will experience a joy unlike any other joy. Will you grieve over the sin and pain and death in this life? Yes, you will grieve, but you will not do so as those who have no hope. Christ is returning to make all things right. And when he does, friend, you have a front row seat. You will be with him forever. Be encouraged this morning.
But in a room of this size, I know that there are likely some of you are here and you don't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here this morning because you're curious about Christianity or, or something's going on in your life where you're, you're questioning things and you want to know, is there really truth? Is there really something I can put my hope in? This morning, what you need to know is that there is a great hope that you can have. You were made with purpose. You were made to know and to live with God forever. This world is not all there is. If you do not know Christ this morning, I plead with you. What greater day could there be than to trust in him today? To no longer rely and put your hope in your own life record, your own good works, but instead say, I'm going to rely utterly on Jesus and what he's accomplished on his cross and his resurrection. Today, my prayer for you is that you would repent of your sin. You turn from that sin and put your life and your hope entirely in Jesus. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us an unwavering hope. I thank you that as we think about death in this room, for those of us who know Christ, it is not something to fear, but even death itself brings us into greater intimacy with you, a greater knowledge of you who has saved us from our sin, who has given us life, who has given us breath, who has redeemed us, who has taken us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. This morning, I pray that you would encourage your people. For those who are losing heart this morning, who are those who are losing heart in their battle of sin, for those who are losing heart with their battles with disease or their battles in relationships or their, their battles that are facing, the fears that they're facing, the, the lack of hope in this world, God, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning. Would you help us to remember that because of your death and your resurrection, we have a living hope that can never be taken away. And this morning, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would put their trust in you today. I pray that they would turn from sin, turn from rebellion toward you, and instead trust you. That they would see your unbelievable mercy, the unbelievable love that you have for them as expressed on the cross of Jesus Christ. That you have taken upon yourself their sin. That you offer them forgiveness and eternal life. Would they not run from that, God, but would they put their all of their lives in that truth?